uh, we've been learning in the book of Acts for a little while now. And at this point, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6. So if everyone could turn to Acts chapter 6, if you look at verses 8 through 15 with me, that's where we'll be today. But before we begin uh, with the passage, I want to give you some background, an overview of the book of uh, Acts from um, chapter 1. The church has been given this commission in chapter 1, verses 8, to take the gospel into the world, to be witnesses of Christ to the ends of the earth. And in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the believers so that they would be empowered to fulfill this great task that lies ahead of them. And the mission, uh, this great commission, seems to be what the church is primarily about in this book of Acts. The church was made to be an evangelistic agency, uh, so to speak. And God equips the church with the necessary components for effective evangelism. One of the first tools we see that God equips the, the church with is unity. Towards the end of chapter 2, it says that they were all together in learning the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayer. And there was a certain power that was formed from that unity. There was a certain strength that came out of that togetherness that they had. And because of the apostles' doctrine, they all knew the message of the gospel. They understood the importance of bringing that message to, of the gospel to a lost and dying world that was around them. And they didn't deviate from this gospel. They didn't get sidetracked from the gospel. And that's not to say that they weren't met with many earthly concerns and social issues, but that they dealt with these issues accordingly and with godly wisdom. We heard in Dick's sermon last week that the apostles told the people to choose seven men who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to handle the ministry of waiting tables. Because of the problem that arose between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews, while the apostles themselves continued in the ministry of the word of God. So we see that there's this balance that the early church has and the church is refined by this balance. The church is uh, refined by them hanging and clinging to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and also by uniting with one another and helping one another in times of need. The church is also refined by the Lord himself who establishes fear amongst the camp of believers. When the Lord killed Ananias and Sapphira, for lying to the Holy Spirit, it is said that there was great fear that rose up and it began to spread throughout the whole church. And all of them who heard this story of Ananias and Sapphira, they began to have this fear for God, this reverence and this respect for the Almighty God. And from the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we can clearly see that the church was only for those who wanted to be purified and who wanted their sins dealt with and who were ready to make a commitment to God to walk in the light and to forsake walking in darkness. Later on in Acts chapter 5, we're told that the apostles had to endure some persecution. 
they were put in jail and, and they were beaten and they were flogged. And this was done by the hands of the Sanhedrin. And this was all because they preached the gospel openly to the public and to those who are willing to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And up until this point, they actually had favor with the people of Jerusalem. In chapter 2, it says they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And really, in Jerusalem, there was only one place that resisted the gospel, and that was the religious leadership of the temple. And that included the Sanhedrin, the 70 men, plus the high priest, the elders and the rulers of the people, the captain of the temple, and even the Levite priests who served under the captain of the temple, who took care of the maintenance of the temple, and who served the chief priests as they offered sacrifices. But now in chapter 6, verses 7, we're told that the gospel even began to penetrate the ranks of these Levitical priests so that, verse 7, a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. But tied to this amazing success of the gospel in Jerusalem is the fact that God's restraining hand that was present in the lives of these new believers earlier on in the book of Acts to protect them from persecution and to protect them from evil, it seemed to slowly be lifted from them. And persecution now is beginning to flood into the church doors. And the first ones to experience it are the apostles, the leaders, the ones who are on the front line pushing the gospel forward. And this to me is a clear sign that God is getting ready to do something big with the mission of the gospel. If you've read the book of Acts before, you know that it is God's will to extend the gospel message beyond the walls of Jerusalem to Samaria and even to the Gentile nations. The gospel is meant to be preached to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles after. And this is found in Romans 1 verses 16. And so it seems now that the task of the gospel being preached to the Jews first is just about to come to an end. And it appears now that God is preparing his launch pad of the gospel to extend his grace and to extend his love and to extend his mercy. Also beyond the Jews to the Samaritans and even to the Gentile nations outside of Israel. But here's the big question. The big question is this, who or what is the catalyst that God is going to use to precipitate the gospel being launched into these other nations? What is God's plan? What exactly is God going to do next? Well, God chooses a man that goes by the name of Stephen. And Stephen was the first of the seven men chosen to wait on tables. And the fact that Stephen was chosen first confirms his character. I mean, it's obvious that Stephen is a godly man with a good reputation among the believers and that he's totally sold out to Christ. Stephen eventually becomes the first Christian martyr. And God uses Stephen's death to launch the gospel past the boundaries of Jerusalem and in, into, into um, non-Jewish territory. 
And in chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, we get to learn a little bit about this disciple of Christ named Stephen. Verse 8 says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Now it's important to note here that there's no mention of Stephen having any titles. I mean, we know he wasn't an apostle, but yet he performed great signs and wonders among the people. And this is the first time in the book of Acts that we see a Christian that was not an apostle performing signs and wonders like an apostle did. He wasn't a deacon, but yet he served as a deacon in the ministry of distributing food to the people that had need. Stephen was just like you and I. He never seen the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, but he lived a life that was in total submission to Christ, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And with grace and power, he performed great signs and wonders among the people. And that should serve as an example to everyone here today that none of us need a a, a title or a position in a church to be an effective Christian in the kingdom of God. Within the kingdom of God, all believers are called to a unique position, and that is to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. That word witness in Greek in the masculine form is martus, and it means one who affirms, one who affirms and who can affirm to what he himself has seen and to what he himself has heard. And that is exactly what Stephen was doing. Stephen was boldly affirming the truth of the gospel. He was boldly affirming Jesus Christ to the people of Jerusalem. But in verse 9, it says opposition arose. And it came from the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. And these were Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. I mean, they flatly opposed the message that Stephen brought. And there was absolutely no tolerance for this new doctrine that Stephen stood for. And this will probably lead some of us to say, but I thought the gospel was supposed to be good news. Well, if the gospel is good news, then why exactly is this, does the Sanhedrin reject it so much? Well, the thing is, the gospel is good news, but just not to everyone. It's certainly not good news to those who are self-righteous and to those who believe that in and of themselves that they could be good people. And I believe it's one of the common lies of Satan. In Mark chapter 10, verses 18, Jesus said, no one is good except for one. And that, of course, is God alone. You see, the problem here is that Stephen has to preach a gospel message to a self-righteous people. And the gospel message says that it's not your way and it's not what you think to be true that is true. It's God's way. And the words in these scriptures show that this man, Jesus, who died on the cross on Calvary, is in fact the Messiah, 
the anointed one, the savior of the world. And, and that without him, there's no way to be reconciled to God. And that's not an easy message for people to swallow who have already made up their minds that their own ideas and their own interpretations about God is reality. And this is what the Bible calls self-righteousness. And we all have a certain amount of it inside of us. Since the fall of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, there's always been a desire in us all to want to decide for ourselves between what is good and what is evil. And this is the source of the tension that is shown between Stephen and these Jews that are opposing him. The structure of verse 9 makes it probable that the freedmen, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, attended one synagogue. And those of Cilicia and Asia attended another. So the picture here is that there are two groups of Jews from different Roman provinces who have banded together and formed sort of a coalition. And they're putting forward their best understanding of how to condemn Stephen in the things that he's saying. But in verse 10, it shows that their plan fails. It says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. The Holy Spirit is within Stephen, and it made his teaching and his preaching so powerful that all of them put together, this whole team working together is powerless against one man, Stephen. As hard as they try, these highly educated religious leaders, they can't shut Stephen down. Verse 10 is basically telling us that Stephen is not the primary one doing the talking, though. And that is actually the Holy Spirit that starts to answer the arguments. And the Holy Spirit is putting his words into Stephen, and Stephen is just repeating those words back to the crowd. In other words, God has got so much of Stephen that now God is not just in him, but God is working through him, which is exactly what God desires for each and every one of us in this church. We're called to be so filled with the Holy Spirit and with the word of God that God begins to use us by not just speaking through us, but use us with our actions and our deeds. Now, just take a look at what's happening in the next verses. In verses 11 through 14, there is just a wave of sin that is accumulating and moving with force straight towards Stephen. Verse 11 says, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, pause for just a second here. Those who read the Bible and those who are familiar with um, the Old Testament, you realize that blasphemy is a capital offense. If Stephen is committing blasphemy, according to the law of Moses, he's going to die for it. In other words, we just started a trial proceedings. And this trial is a life or death capital offense. These religious leaders absolutely will do anything to stop this man, Stephen. Verse 12, so they stirred up the people 
and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. By the word, by the way, the word stir has a connotation of just mixing a pot of soup that's just been sitting there and is going bad. So you got to mix it up and move stuff around. That is exactly what they're doing. And they're going to create a fervor to stop this man, Stephen. Verse 13, they also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Before we get to verse 15, the end of the chapter, I just want to point out that doesn't this script sound pretty familiar? Like, hey, I've seen this movie before and I know exactly how it's going to end. Because they're doing the exact same thing with Stephen right now that they did with Jesus. In fact, they're bringing the same exact charges against Stephen that they brought with Jesus. They are using Jesus as a precedence for this trial. And these religious leaders don't care what it takes. If we have to break the Ten Commandments and cause people to lie against Stephen to get him executed, that's what we'll do. We'll do whatever it takes, that whatever that we have to do to stop this man, that's what we'll do. Because we can't win an argument against him. So they're going to do whatever it takes. And they come with the same approach that they used with Jesus. And they're going to bring the same charges against Stephen that they brought against Jesus. And that charge is blasphemy. Now Stephen, being a man that is well trained in the apostles' doctrine, must have had an understanding of why these things were happening to him. The apostles and the teachers who taught Stephen everything he knew about Jesus surely would have taught him all of the warnings and also of the blessings of persecution as it relates to the church. In Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 13, Jesus gave one of the most gut-wrenching but at the same time insightful prophecies about church persecution that would take place after he ascended into heaven and after the Holy Spirit is given. And this is the times which the Bible calls the last days, which began when the Holy Spirit was given approximately 2,000 years ago. And it's amazing how this prophecy brings to life exactly what Stephen and the early church has gone through. And so as Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives and he looks towards Jerusalem, he begins to tell his disciples of what would take place soon after he leaves. In Mark chapter 13, verses 9, he tells them, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations, 
when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. And as we look at this passage today, it should serve as a reminder to all of us that in reality, this world is not our home. We are simply aliens and strangers here. And that we are involved in a great invisible warfare. There is spiritual warfare taking place all around us. Between God and between Satan. Between light and darkness. Between the truth and between error. And it will all come to a cataclysmic conclusion at the return of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus begins with this call for the alertness of the believers. We need to have our spiritual eyes open. At the time of this fulfillment, believers will be given up to the government officials and will be publicly flogged and beaten and whipped and many of them unto martyrdom and unto death. No wonder Jesus says, be on your guard to be ready so that your confidence is strong in the Lord when such a time of tribulation would come upon the scene. He says, for they will deliver you to the courts. The very same phrase is used for Stephen in Acts chapter 6 verses 12 when it says, they brought him before the Sanhedrin. What we obviously draw from this is that it will become a crime, a capital crime, to be a Christian. And for Stephen and many other Christians, it will become a crime worthy of death. To hold to Christian values in a godless society. And religious freedoms will be removed as it relate to Christianity. That is surely an implication that we could draw from this. To be a Christian and to stand for Christian values during this prophecy will be a punishable offense in the courts that will lead to persecution and even death. And do we not see in our very time that w- in which we live in and now the changing of a culture and the changing of a society and the changing of laws that protect Christian morals before our very eyes? And in some countries, Christians are experiencing persecution to a very high degree at this very moment. And in other countries, not so much. We are definitely one of the lucky ones. But one of the things that God reveals to us about persecution is that the real issue that the world has with us is Christ. The real hatred from the Sanhedrin is towards Christ. And we who bear the name of Christ, and we who preach Christ, and we who preach the, the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone, And we who preach the word of God and the morals that are laid out for the family in the home. 
Many will see us as public enemy number one. And the real reason will ultimately be of Christ. Christ is the stumbling block. Christ is the rock of offense that causes the world to be offended. And because Stephen is simply preaching his message, they opposed him, lied against him, charged him with blasphemy, and brought him before the courts. But I want you to notice something. When the Sanhedrin meets and they confer against when they confer against somebody in general, the way that the trial usually went, according to Simon Kistemaker, who wrote a, a commentary on the book of Acts, 70 men would take their place in this semicircle. And they were always elevated above the accused. And these 70 men would look down on the accused and they would wag their fingers and pass judgment on the accused. And that's exactly what's going on right now. Stephen is standing before the courts. And these 70 men are surrounding him and watching him. And as they look down at Stephen and as they criticize and critique Stephen, something unusual happens. Right in front of them, Stephen just starts looking very different to them. Verse 15, and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Like a divine light just shone down on Stephen in the middle of them accusing him and judging him. Now here's what some Bible, Bible scholars have pointed out. The guy who wrote this book, which was Luke, wasn't present at the trial because he wasn't part of the trial. So Luke got this information from a first-hand account. And it's almost certain that one of the Sanhedrin that day remembers this face and remembers how it looks and will remember this face for the rest of his life. It was a Pharisee by the name of Saul who in just a few weeks will be radically and totally transformed by Jesus Christ and become the great Apostle Paul. Saul the Pharisee, probably for the rest of his life, will never forget what Stephen's face looks like. And in fact, it probably burned such an impression on Paul that he tells his protege, Luke, like, hey, listen, let me tell you what I remember. When I saw Stephen standing in front of the Sanhedrin. There's always a purpose to persecution. God raises up people, his people, as testimonies in crucial moments. You're being raised up for a crucial moment for the gospel. Now we don't know the logistics behind every single case of Christian persecution. But... Jesus gives us a key principle, and that is so that we can be testimonies to them. As Christians, whether we live for the gospel or whether we die for the gospel, God calls us to live lives 
that are testimonies to the world around us. Your moment may not be like Stephen's moment. It may not be as weighty as Stephen's moment. You may not ever get persecuted ever. You may not bear the gravity that Stephen had to bear. But what you're going to find when you face your hour is exactly what he found. And that is that God has everything under control. And that he is trustworthy. And that he is faithful. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 5 reassures us that Jesus will never leave our side and nor will he ever forsake us. And that means you can do whatever the hour calls for you to do. Not because you have the ability to do it, but because God working in you has the ability to do it. God will always give us the grace to stand with the gospel, especially in our darkest hours.